0: This is 50 Feminist States, a road-tripping storytelling podcast visiting all 50 U.S. states to interview feminist activists and artists about their work for gender justice. I'm Amelia Hruby, and this week we're on the ancestral lands of the Paiute, Wallapai, Wapo, and Western Shoshone peoples, now known as Nevada.
1: From the glaciers of Alaska to the dunes of Indiana, I want 50 feminist states. From the waves of New Hampshire, to skies of Montana, I want 50 Feminist States. And when you hear the call, you know so well, sisters, speak out, I know I
0: will. Hi, 50 Feminist States fam. Amelia here. Welcome back to the podcast. So much has happened in the world since our last episode that we shared from season five. I am amazed and excited and a little bit exhausted by how much has been happening so fast. Since that last episode, we have seen mass protests all over the United States and the world responding to police brutality in the US, sharing the necessity of the call that Black Lives Matter, demanding justice for George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Tony McDade, and others who have been murdered by police in the United States. We have also seen the cultural consciousness around police abolition and prison abolition change what feels like overnight. Demands for reform have turned into calls for abolition so swiftly, and we've seen one major city in the U.S., Minneapolis, commit to defunding its police department. I have to say that two weeks ago, none of this felt possible to me and to so many others, to so many people who have been fighting for police and prison abolition for decades and decades. It's been really wonderful to See cultural consciousness shift and to see so many actions all over the world. Because of the call to amplify melanated voices on Instagram last week, I chose not to share this episode from season five that I had planned in Nevada, but I am very excited to bring it to you today. Today's episode is an interview with Chelsea Cheatham of Track B Exchange in Las Vegas, Nevada. Track B Exchange is a storefront site committed to providing consulting to the community for infectious disease prevention and harm reduction surrounding syringe use and disposal. They offer a variety of services, including needle exchange and different harm reduction programs that we'll hear about during the episode. They also have programming specifically for sex workers and harm reduction among the sex working population of Nevada. Chelsea, who we'll hear from today, is the program manager at Track B Exchange and she's going to share with us many of the different services, outreach, and education efforts that are ongoing at the organization. I'm particularly excited to share this episode this week because of this shift that I've just talked about, this massive cultural consciousness change that's been able to see and understand the necessity of police abolition instead of police reform. If you're tuned into this, And you haven't gotten there yet. That's okay. There are many, many resources online, some of which have been shared through the 50 Feminist States Instagram page, explaining why abolition will have a much greater impact than police reform ever could. For those of you who have been able to make this shift, who have really now come to see abolition as the way forward... I want to invite you to start making that shift in other areas of your life. And I'm especially excited, as I've said many times now, to share this episode today because I think that harm reduction is another place where we need this sort of shift in cultural consciousness, where we have to let go of a criminalizing model of drug use and move into a harm reduction model. In this episode, Chelsea explains some of the core tenets of harm reduction and the ways in which it serves entire communities to come together to reduce harm rather than to criminalize drug use. For those of you who are brand new to harm reduction, I encourage you to listen to this episode with an open mind to consider why you may carry stigmas around something like needle exchange or syringe distribution. In the same way that so many people have started to understand the harm that the police have done to so many communities in the past few weeks, we can all also come to understand the harm that the criminalization of drug use has done to those same communities, specifically black and brown communities in the United States. Chelsea is much more knowledgeable about all of this than I am and a practitioner in the field. So I want to go ahead and let you hear from her why this work is so important and everything that Track B Exchange is doing. At the end of the episode, she'll also share some of the ways that their practices have changed in response to COVID 19, but assuring us that they are still present and caring for their community at all times. I hope that we can all share in that commitment. I hope that everyone listening will learn about harm reduction. For now, here's Chelsea.
1: Hi, my name is Chelsea Cheatham. I'm the program manager at Track B Exchange. We are a harm reduction syringe exchange program based out of Las Vegas, Nevada. And I'm here in my office right now. We are still working. Um, Even though COVID-19 is happening all around us, we're trying to stay open so we can provide services to the community.
0: Yeah, I think that's so wonderful and necessary. And we'll kind of circle back to that by the end. And I want to hear a little more about how right now is impacting TrackB Exchange. But to start, could you just share a little bit with listeners about the harm reduction framework and some of the harm reduction programs that TrackB Exchange offers?
1: Sure. So... When we look at harm reduction what we're looking at is reducing risk that is found in behaviors that people are engaging in on a daily basis. So anything that's harmful whether it's you know driving so harm reduction for driving would be airbags, seatbelts when we're looking at it for people that are using substances it might be safer smoking devices so that people aren't sharing giving people sterile syringes so that they are at less risk of getting HIV or hepatitis C from a used syringe, providing sharps containers for people to dispose of syringes safely. And when TRAC-B started in 2017, we originally began working with people that were using syringes mostly. It was in direct response to the opioid epidemic that was going on in the country that's still going on. And my background is more in hepatitis prevention. So I worked for the state previously and we kind of saw a need in Southern Nevada for a syringe exchange program. They had estimated that there were over 4,000 needle users and we had no programs that were able to help them. So we wanted to look at it in a way where we're not trying to get people into treatment. That's not our goal. Our goal is to keep people safe while they are still engaging in a behavior. And then hopefully when they do decide, or if they do decide to go into treatment, they are armed with the tools of health and the tools of knowledge at that point and how to just keep themselves safe and to be able to go into treatment and take care of themselves for the rest of their lives.
0: Wow. Thank you for sharing. I think it's such important work and I, I feel like harm reduction, just the concept of it, won't be familiar to some of my listeners. And so I'm really trying to share how important that work is and how different it is from what might be their perception, which might be a very like criminalizing or carceral approach to needle users and other people who. And I I think the harm reduction approach is the one that works and keeps people safe and healthy. And so I'm really excited by the work you're doing. Could you share with us how you got involved with Track B Exchange and what work you do there now?
1: Sure. So I was working previously for the state in hepatitis prevention, and our current program director had just retired from the Southern Nevada Health District, and he actually started the HIV program over 40 years ago at the Southern Nevada Health District. So we just kind of got together and started talking about issues that were going on in the state, and I had recently at that time visited Northern Nevada Hopes Change Point, which is the syringe exchange that is in Northern Nevada. They opened in 2013 and they had such a great program when I went there. And what I really liked about their program when I saw it was how warm and welcoming it was. Their program is set up more in a house. So people are coming in and it feels just like you're walking into like a friend's house to get your sterile syringes and people were able to get coffee and sit down and talk to people. And, I was like, this is amazing. This is completely different than the world that I was in at the time, which was sitting behind a desk looking at numbers and doing the grants part. So I really wanted to do more of the hands-on and actually meeting people where they are, which is a big thing that you hear in harm reduction, in helping them but not leaving them there. So I talked to our program director, and he loved the idea. And we just kind of came together and created this thing that has kind of grown in the last three years that we've been open to a full harm reduction program. And it's something that I definitely feel was like, I'm in the right place. There has never been like a job or anything that I've done where I've actually felt like I was making as much of a difference, but then also learning so much on a daily basis as I am now.
0: Wow, that's great. Can you talk us through a little bit? Like what are the different programs that Track the Exchange has and offers to the community?
1: Sure. So we take what we call a three-pronged approach to getting syringes into the community and getting also syringe return from the community. That's one of the biggest things that we advocate for is that all of our clients bring back all their used syringes so we can ensure that they don't end up you know, placed in the community anywhere where they shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. So we do storefront syringe exchange, we do outreach, and we also have a shipping program. So at the storefront, people can walk in and it's just like a normal, like if you're walking into a physician's office, we have a counter they walk up and they fill out a form and let us know what they need. We do sterile syringes. We also have safer sex supplies. So we have condoms and lube. We have wound care kits for people as well. So we're able to provide band-aids and antiseptic wipes and tegaderm film and other things where people can protect themselves from like abscesses or getting infections we have hygiene kits so they have soap and conditioner and things like that we provide naloxone to people here as well so the overdose reversal medication
0: mm-hmm. and
1: we also do that in our outreach, so we have a lot of the same things, but we'll go out into the community, either in a vehicle or just like walking, and we have areas that we go to on a regular basis where we have organized outreach, and then we're always going to new locations to talk to people to get them the supplies that they need and also pick up all of those used supplies. And then last year, we started doing shipping. Nevada is a really unique state because we have a lot of frontier and rural counties And we have very few major cities. So currently we serve Las Vegas in the Las Vegas metropolitan area, and Change Point works in Reno in the Reno metropolitan area. But we also wanted to reach out to the rest of the state and all the other counties that are a little more rural. So we can ship directly to PO boxes into people's homes, Mm -hmm. and they are able to send products back to us that way. So we are able to. Do the collection that way. And some of the other programs that we offer are specific to our sex worker population. So mm-hmm. we found out really soon after we opened that a large amount of our clients were engaging in the sex trade, either in order to support their lives or just support their use. So we decided that we wanted to reach out to them and have programming for people that are sex workers. So we have community advisory boards. We also offer a bad date list. We have classes where we teach people how to transition from the illegal side of sex work to more legal work if they decide they want to do that. And another program that we started recently was our peer program. So we're able to help navigate people into treatment when they want to get into treatment now with a licensed drug and alcohol counselor as well as people that have lived experience with substance use. So they're able to talk to people and provide specific examples in their own lives of, you know, things that happened in in the process that it took for them to get into treatment, which often it makes it more comfortable for people to ask questions and also engage in treatment rather than when they're just talking to a clinician or someone who's never been there before. So that's kind of a, brief synopsis of all the programs that we offer here.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's so much. Those are like a ton of offerings. What's the makeup of Track B Exchange itself? How many of you are working there? Is it a lot of staff? Is it primarily volunteers? Like, who's doing this really important work?
1: Sure. So we ended up with, I think currently we have about 11 staff members at Track B we have had people come in as volunteers, but usually our volunteers turn into staff members really quick. That's probably how we got about half of our staff members. Mm -hmm. We are lucky enough to be able to write a lot of grants for the things that we do. So even though we love having volunteers, we're able to transition those people into paid positions, which it definitely helps to be able to keep people engaged and then also to be able to Basically, tell them that their work is like really meaningful, you know, that we really want them here as a staff member and not as a volunteer. But we work with a pretty small staff compared to all the programs that we do. So everybody wears multiple hats here. Um, There's no person that has just one job or, you know, one role, but we've been able to get things done here locally. And then we've been able to also expand into other areas throughout the state of Nevada as well with just such a small staff.
0: That's awesome. I'm glad to hear that you already mentioned this, but I kind of wanted to touch back on it in a state that has such rural populations, so it seems like the the shipping program is one way you're really able to reach people who maybe can't get to your locations but could you share a little more about kind of how that impacts your services and people's needs like this sort of the really rural parts of the state versus kind of the hubs like vegas and and Reno and yeah, like how does your approach kind of see people where they're at or treat both of those populations
1: so this is something that we've been working on for a while is reaching out to the rural areas of the state we know that they are also being hard hit with the opioid crisis some of our smaller communities were seeing that they were having the highest number of opioid prescriptions you know so we wanted to make sure that we reached out to them So we have syringe vending machines here. That's one thing that I haven't mentioned yet. So our syringe vending machines right now are all local. We have six in the community that people can use, and they can use them free of charge and get supplies out of them. And we are actually putting two machines in rural areas pretty soon, and we are going to reach out to people that way. And then also through the shipping program, we're able to get people supplies. One of the things that we know is it's not really only about supplies. It's about the interaction. So we want to make sure Mm -hmm. that people have the ability to talk to someone, to ask questions. Because if someone decides they want to get into recovery, we want to make sure that they have someone to reach out to. So the state was great, and they have a state opioid response grant. And it is run through our university in northern Nevada, Reno. And they have provided us with some funds to have a 24-7 warm line so that people can call 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year if they're looking to get into treatment. And they have a real person, someone from our office that answers that phone at all times, and they will talk to them about treatment options. We also figured out that there are not a lot of local treatment options for people in rural communities. So we have been working with that state opioid response grant to place peers in the rural areas as well. So currently we have one in Elko, Nevada, which is about six and a half hours north of Las Vegas. And he has been able to, in maybe about four months, get three individuals into treatment. And we have one that's placed in another county about two and a half hours north of Las Vegas. And then we just recently hired someone that is in a third county. And we're going to have about four placed throughout the state when this is all said and done. But we've realized that having someone working in the community that's able to also talk to people about their use and be non judgmental and have absolutely no stigma behind the questions that they're asking or. You know, they're not looking for certain answers. They're not looking for anyone to say, oh, I want to get into treatment. If someone doesn't want to, that's fine. You know, they'll still be able to get all the services that we offer. And we'll just always have that available to offer them in case they ever do. It makes such a huge difference. So we want to expand that as much as we can throughout the state of Nevada.
0: Yeah, that sounds like such a great program. And I think it makes a lot of sense that that like human connection is needed in the decision to access any resources, but it's also something I think myself and I'm sure many people would think like, well, if the resources are there, people will just use them, but they need that person to kind of make that choice or talk to them about what's available or like that person to person conversation is so important. So it's cool to hear about how you're doing that.
1: It definitely is. And I think with having people with lived experience, they're able to help people access what we like to call natural community support. So a lot of times, when people don 't want to get into treatment it 's not that they don 't want to; they just have other things going on, so they may not have somewhere to live and that 's more important to them at the time than figuring out how they 're going to stop using yeah. or it could be the reason that they 're using is because they are having so much trauma emotionally or mentally from not having somewhere to live or you know not having food or other things, so they 're just kind of coping with substances so figuring out like with each individual, what's going on in your life and what are your barriers to treatment and how can we reduce these barriers? You know, if we get you food, is that going to help? If we find you a place to live, will that help? You know, sometimes it's as easy as helping someone get their driver's license because they couldn't get into treatment because they didn't have an ID. And, you know, they've been sitting around for months or years and not getting in because they never had an ID and you just, Do something as simple as request their birth certificate for them from another state and get them their ID and that's all they needed. You know, so that's really the key about having someone there to like work with people. So you're 100 percent right. It's really that person-to-person connection and being able to sit with people as individuals and talk to them and actually care about their story and like learning about them that makes the biggest difference.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how much you'll know about this question, but I'm wondering you know, everything you're doing is in Nevada and you're talking about kind of how the funding has come from like the state and universities. Is Nevada unique in any way in its kind of harm reduction programs and approach to the opioid crisis? Are you building on things you're seeing in other states? Are you kind of a leader in this area? Could you share a little bit of more like the national landscape maybe in terms of harm reduction and needle exchanges or whatever you may know about it?
1: Yes. So I know that there are lots of states that have syringe exchange programs. We passed the legislation, which was Senate Bill 410 in 2013, that allowed syringe exchange to happen here in the state of Nevada. And that was done with Northern Nevada Hopes and Change Point and the group that was working in the north, really kind of pushing everything through with legislators and other community members. And that was a great bill because it did not require one-to-one syringe exchange, which is something that's required in a lot of other states. So when we're able to give people as many syringes as they need, and then we just require them to return those in order to get more, it helps a lot because you're reducing the risk of people sharing, and then you're also reducing issues if people for some reason have their syringes confiscated, which happens a lot when people are arrested. Mm -hmm. So then if you have one for one, someone's coming out and they have nothing. So then where are they going to get them? They have to get them from someone else, which could be used. So when that law was written, it was written really well. Um, It also decriminalized a lot of the paraphernalia that goes along with use Mm -hmm. so that people had the opportunity to fully utilize syringe exchange programs and bring everything back. To us, And we were able to provide them with all of the equipment that they need to stay safe. I think in Nevada, we just have a really good climate when it comes to harm reduction. There's not been a single person that we've met with that is either working for the state or the counties or the cities that has ever really had anything negative to say once we explain what harm reduction is. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the areas that we're working in now are really receptive to the idea because I think a lot of places are starting to see that the whole idea of punishment for use or forcing people to get into treatment or forcing people into jail if they are using, it doesn't work. It's not really changing anything. So we're really lucky here, I think, um, when it comes to just our landscape for harm reduction programs. And I'm not sure if it has anything to do with the fact that Nevada you know, is just so used to things happening that are different. We're the only state that has legal brothels. We have legal gambling, and it's all over the state. So I think sometimes when you have really unique ideas, they are not looked at as strangely here as they might be in other places. Mm -hmm. And one of the cool things is with the vending machine program, we were able to be the first state in the continental U.S. to bring vending machines for syringe exchange. It was something that was used all over in Europe and in Australia and also in Puerto Rico as well. So when we were presented with that idea years ago, we just decided it was something that we wanted to do. And it was something that would be an easy way to get product out to people. And we honestly had no pushback locally for that idea. And we were able to roll that out really easily. I feel always lucky that
0: I'm here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it sounds like a great climate and ideal. And I mean, hearing you say that, you know, when you've met with people and explained harm reduction, no one has had negative responses is so great. And I'm so happy to hear that and also explains how you're able to do so much and help so many people, which is awesome. Mm -hmm. I think maybe my last question for now is just how is COVID-19 impacting your work? I think it's impacting everyone's work, so I assume it is impacting your work in some way, but... How are you seeing the impacts of that at Track B Exchange and in what ways are you all responding?
1: Well, we definitely have seen less clients recently. We were seeing about 60 to 70 clients a day and now it's dropped closer to 40 to 50. So we know that people are staying home a little bit more not coming out of their house. We now are doing syringe exchange here at the storefront through closed door. So we talk to the people through the door and then We open up our mail slot and we stick everything out so they get all their syringes and all their supplies, but they're able to get it through the mail slot. They're able to still dispose of all their syringes in a big sharps container that we place outside. So we've made just like little changes to reduce the staff's risk of contracting COVID 19 while still being able to serve the community. Mm -hmm. One of the biggest things is we did have to stop doing outreach but we are talking about starting outreach again and just doing it in a different way. So instead of walking through areas, we're going to take a mobile vehicle and we might just do exchange with one person from each area. If they just come up to the vehicle and we hand everything out of the window and they can take things back to their their camp or their group, that way we're still able to get supplies out. Because we know that Las Vegas is a large city and it's hard for people to get all the way to us, which is, you know, one of the benefits of us being able to do outreach and also the benefits of vending machines because we can have them throughout the entire city so that people can access supplies and services Mm. easily. Another thing that we've also noticed is we are getting less calls for people trying to get into treatment and we're not exactly sure why that is. It could be that people are just as nervous about going into a new treatment facility Mm you know, or starting a new program now with COVID-19 happening. So what we're trying to do is offer them support via phone or like video conference. So all of our staff have Zoom downloaded on their phone. And then what they're doing is calling all of the clients that we work with in our peer program individually and talking to them to see if there's anything that they need right now, because we want to make sure that the stress of COVID-19 losing jobs If people are houseless, it's easy for people who have a house to maybe keep enough food in stock for days or, you know, have supplies, but it's not always the case if you're houseless. So we want to make sure that they have everything that they need. So we're just doing that one-on-one with phone calls and FaceTime and everything. Yeah, those are really the biggest changes that we've made. And we're hoping it doesn't last very long and we're able to, you know, reopen fully, you know, as soon as possible.
0: Yeah. Well, it sounds like you're still, you know, reaching out one-to-one to people and still able to provide services, which is great to hear. Yeah. I think those are all of my questions for today. Is there anything we haven't talked about that you wanted to mention? Um,
1: okay. Yeah. So with our sex worker program, we are doing, Some trainings and classes with people if they are interested in learning how to transition from like illegal based sex work, which would be anything street based to more of the legal side, whether it's, you know, working indoors on cam or, Mm -hmm. you know, text based sex work or things like that. And we are still available to do that with people one-on-one, even with COVID-19 happening. We can do that by video conference or by telephone call. So I definitely want people to to hear about that because Mm -hmm. I think right now it's affecting every economy, even street-based economies. So we want to make sure that people who are relying on funds from a street-based economy also can now transition or at least even if they're not transitioning fully into an indoor legal side of sex work that they are able to learn about it. So if they ever do want to transition in the future, if this happens again, you know, in a few years that they, they have options and it's a really good way to keep people safe. It's a way to, to prevent arrest. It's a really good way to prevent injury and also to prevent the spread of things like COVID-19.
0: Yeah, I think that's really great. I'm glad you mentioned it. Can you share a little bit about like what's involved in that program or those trainings at all?
1: Sure. So we have them once a month here at Track B and they're usually in person and we just have a PowerPoint where we will explain the ins and outs of everything legal sex work based. So here in Nevada, we have brothels, strip clubs, and then also we tell people about phone sex and chat sex, like that sort of thing, so that people can just hear about all the options that they have if they're looking for something that's on the legal side. Mm -hmm. But we go really in-depth about, you know, how do you sign up for this? How do you get paid? What kinds of things do you want to look out for when you're signing a contract? You know, these are places that you may want to avoid. We have a bad date list that has information about, you know, if people have been, robbed assaulted but it could also include things about businesses that may have treated people improperly or Mm -hmm. or badly so we can tell people like okay this is what other people have said about this company you know you may want to avoid it Mm -hmm. it's really a within group way of educating people keeping people safe and then also just being able to get the word about out about things that are available here in Las Vegas or Southern Nevada that just aren't really things that people talk about. We don't ever talk about, you know, how people start working in brothels or anything like that, even though they're legal here. So it's kind of good to be able to have information about, you know, how that occurs. And so that if someone wants to do that, they know step-by-step how they would get started.
0: Yeah. No, I think that's so important. And like we're watching. So many businesses transition kind of in-person economies and transactions into a digital space. And so it's great to hear there are resources for sex workers who are trying to make that shift or transition to just to keep themselves safe during this pandemic and this outbreak of COVID-19. So I will definitely make sure to include that in the episode, obviously, but also in the show notes so people know that that work is, is happening. Sounds good. I think this was all great. So thanks so much, Chelsea. Have a wonderful afternoon. 50 estados feministas 50 estados feministas 50
1: Feminist Day 50 Feminist Day 50 Feminist Day, 50 Feminist Day.
0: Thanks for tuning in to this episode of 50 Feminist States. You can find show notes at 50 slash podcast and follow us on Instagram at 50 Feminist States. Special thanks to Danielle Signs and Jessica Naria for our theme song. Until next time, Wild Ones, we'll see you on the road.